Since Christmas time, I have been preaching through the Gospel of Luke with a focus on how these conversations that Jesus had with various people, conversations that God had through angels and visions and dreams, are all examples of prayer. Prayer is a highfalutin word that we use for having a conversation with God. It's just that simple. We're coming down to the end. This and next week's sermons are the last in this series. And we come to a story which New Testament commentators William Barclay and N.T. Wright describe as one of the immortal short stories of the world. Or the finest scene Luke ever sketched. It's just one of those precious stories. But it's also a story in which Jesus is playing hide-and-seek with two of his disciples. Did you know that Jesus played hide-and-seek? He was in this story with two of that larger group of disciples that had followed him for the better part of three years. But it's not only physically hiding, but it's also Jesus playing dumb. Jesus pretending like he doesn't know so that other people will be forced to articulate what they think they know or what their expectations were or what their misunderstandings were. So hide-and-seek, playing dumb, one of the immortal short stories of the world, the finest scene Luke ever sketched. You'll find this in Luke chapter 24, if you turn there with me. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. This is a story that takes place on that first Easter Sunday. Now that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Can you hear the incredulity in his voice? <laughs> what things? Jesus asked. <laughs> Doesn't that make you chuckle? <laughs> what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us 
that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. A little bit more hide-and-seek going on here. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. More hide-and-seek. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, seven more miles. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Jesus playing dumb. There are several layers to this story, each layer revealing a deeper truth, perhaps. The first layer is that which is obvious. It's the surface details. It's the thing that anybody picking up this beautiful story when reading it would would recognize, would realize. This is what they thought, these two disciples, what they thought they understood, what they thought was going on. They said he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. And then this telling phrase, we had hoped. You hear that longing in their voices, that expectation that they had? We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel, which means that they thought he was the Messiah. They were convinced that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Also on the surface here, we see some of the emotional content and truth of this story. They're said to have downcast faces. Go ahead, put on your best downcast face. Tears coming down out of the corners of their eyes. They had downcast faces, meaning perhaps that there was a disappointment. Deep down inside, there was a disappointment in a Messiah who had apparently not been a Messiah after all. Or at least not the one that they expected. They were having difficulty coming to terms with a body that had been there Friday afternoon but now was missing. Who stole that body? Where did it go? 
And then there's this cryptic, unimaginable news of a resurrection. It's not just that somebody stole his body, but maybe, maybe he's alive and kicking. I, I just can't imagine what that would look like. So in this story, at the first level, the first layer, there are unmet expectations that they're giving voice to because Jesus was playing dumb and letting them tell their story. There were mixed messages that they had received from the events of the last few days and from the reports of those who had gone to the tomb. There were dashed hopes represented in those downcast faces. All of this indicating that they had read the prophetic messages of the Old Testament. They knew their prophets of the Old Testament, of the scriptures, But what they couldn't make out was how this could possibly have been fulfilled in a Messiah who dies on a cross. That's not a part of the story with which they were familiar. That's not a possibility that they had given any thought to. They were not prepared to see a Messiah who would allow himself to be killed. And consequently, they were completely unprepared to comprehend what a resurrected Messiah would look like. The fact of the matter is that truth may only come on the other side of having our expectations shattered. And this conversation, on the surface at least, was a conversation about shattered expectations and the grief that that brought to them as they were walking along, heading back home to Emmaus. But there's a deeper layer of truth in this story. The Cleopas that's mentioned here Several commentators that I read thought might very well be the Clopas who's mentioned in John's Gospel in chapter 19. His wife Mary was one of the women who was standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus was being crucified. One of several Marys in that story. But Mary was married, identified then as being married to Clopas. So it's quite possible that these two disciples on the road to Emmaus were not two men but actually a husband and a wife named Clopas and Mary. If this is so, and I have a strong feeling that it is so, then what we begin to see is what is a, and actually a fairly common practice that the gospel writers use. They draw parallels between things that happened in the life of Jesus and his disciples and things that happened in the Bible. So the first parallel might be between the very first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, who represented the human race in the first creation story, and the second husband and wife named Clopas and Mary, who represent the human race in a new creation story. The story that began with the fall is now a story which is being consummated by the righteousness of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. Another parallel we can look in here is consider the first meal of the Bible. What's the very first meal mentioned in the Bible? Adam and Eve standing around a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eating that fruit, the first meal in the Bible. And 
as they were eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened? What was the result of that? Their eyes were opened to their nakedness, a way of saying they recognized their sinfulness. Here is another couple having a meal. The first meal of the new creation. And the result of that meal is that their eyes were opened not to their sinfulness, but their eyes were opened to recognize the Savior who sets us free from sin. So in the beginning, Jesus is explaining in this conversation Moses and the prophets. Well, Moses is shorthand for the law, and the law begins with a creation story. So Jesus is explaining to them that this creation story from Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, is finding its fulfillment or finding its correction or finding its restoration in another creation story, a creation story in which Jesus and this couple are experiencing the fruit of the resurrection. There's another deeper truth, another level yet to this story, though. Jesus said, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? The disciples had hoped for a story of how God would redeem Israel from their suffering. But it ended up being a story about how God redeemed Israel through suffering. They were familiar with a story or a version of the story in which God would set his people free from suffering. A Messiah would come, and many Messiahs had come. But this is a different Messiah story, and they're struggling to make sense of it. They had hoped that that for a Messiah, something like uh, Samson or Gideon or King David, what do those characters have in common? They had a strong right arm, didn't they? God brought victory over their enemies. And so these two disciples on the road to Emmaus were hoping that Jesus would be a a new kind of Messiah like Samson or Gideon or David or, or especially Moses. Moses was one of the extraordinary, perhaps the extraordinary messianic figure in the Old Testament. But instead of getting a Moses or a David or a Gideon, they got a Messiah who went and got himself killed. If only they had seen that Jesus wasn't the Moses character in this new Exodus story, but Jesus was the lamb who was slaughtered in this new Exodus story. The Old Testament is full of the strong right hand of God smashing his enemies, promising that he would deliver his people. But when the deliverer finally showed up, the plan of deliverance ended up being death on a cross for the Lamb of God, not smashing all of the enemies with a sword and a spear. So this is a story of a new exodus, an exodus brought about in a different way than the old exodus. 
There's more to the message of the prophets of the Old Testament than glory. But that's what these disciples on the road to Emmaus had been paying attention to. They had been paying attention to the, the Messiah who would come in glory, the prophets who predicted that God would come in that kind of militaristic glory. What they hadn't missed, or what they had missed, was the suffering servant, which is also clearly Mary read from Isaiah 53. That's a messianic prophecy as well, isn't it? Jesus is the culmination of all that Moses and the prophets had foretold. So he is a, a new Exodus story. So here in this story of the conversation on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, Jesus playing dumb leaves room for the disciples to put into words what they were really feeling and what they had been expecting and how disappointed they were. But over the course of the story, we find out that not only is disappointment and heartbreak a real truth that we have to deal with, but also God is, cre- is bringing about a new creation. He is bringing about a new exodus, all in the hard-to-understand stories of Jesus and the cross. There's value in expressing our misunderstanding. There's value in expressing our unmet expectations. There's even value in getting angry with God and shaking our fist and saying, I don't understand what's happening here. Why is this going on the way it is? There's value in that. We can't keep our prayers always so sanctimonious that we fail to give expression to what we're really feeling on the inside because only as we express what we're really feeling is God able to take us deeper. This conversation with God that leads us deeper into the truth is also something, though, that warms our heart. It stirs our passion and our love both for the scripture and for knowing it more deeply. And it ignites our hopes. We shouldn't settle for surface meanings, that first layer of truth. We need to dig deeper. We need to know the language. We need to understand the symbols. We need to understand the metaphors and the poetry of Scripture. We need to understand how these gospel writers told their stories so as to take us back to all the truth in the Old Testament that sets the stage for what Jesus came to do. I liken all of these uh, metaphors, all of these references to the Old Testament as hyperlinks. You know what a hyperlink is? You click on a word in the text on your computer and it takes you someplace else where there's this whole story or a video or an encyclopedia article or something. You click on the hyperlink and all of a sudden all of that meaning, all of that understanding is sucked into the story that you're reading, that you started with. We need to know the Old Testament story like the back of our hand because that's the story that Jesus came to fulfill. And if we only read the glory parts and not the suffering parts, we're going to have a different set of expectations than the ones that we should have. Whenever we read or study the Bible, we need to leave room for Jesus to rebuke us. We need to leave room as we're reading scripture for Jesus to rebuke us. 
just as he rebuked these two on the road to Emmaus, to rebuke us for our foolishness and for our faithless readings and how we have listened to the scripture without understanding its depth. We often have a way of only getting what we want to hear or want to see as we're reading the scripture rather than the whole truth that is to be found. Clopas and Mary had only paid attention to the side of the messianic prophecies that spoke of power and glory. The side that spoke of suffering was all too easily and all too quickly overlooked. And so Jesus takes the time, after rebuking them, Jesus takes the time to explain. That's what it says in the story. He explained Moses and the prophets to them. Things in scripture may not be plain or understandable on the surface. We might need to have Jesus explain things. Scripture usually means infinitely more than what's obvious on the surface. Aren't we glad that Jesus has unleashed the Holy Spirit to explain these things to us? And the Holy Spirit has a number of ways of doing that. Commentaries, word studies. The Holy Spirit can speak directly to us and motivate and inspire us. And he can show us truths that apply to our life in this day, in this moment, regardless of how somebody else may read that passage. That's the way the Holy Spirit is at work in us. But Jesus' seven-mile sermon wasn't just an academic endeavor. He wasn't just explaining facts and figures because it led to what? They didn't realize it at the time, but in retrospect, they realized that their hearts had been burning. As the rabbi was explaining Moses and the prophets, as he was taking them into deeper and deeper layers of the story of the Old Testament that set the stage for his life, their hearts were burning. I was reminded of the story of John Wesley. John Wesley was a young, ordained Anglican priest. He had been a missionary to the colony of Georgia. He had been to seminary and knew the Bible inside and out. But one night, while the group that he was with was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans, John Wesley found his heart strangely warmed. What does that mean, that John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed? On the surface, I suppose it means he got saved. What? The guy's an ordained priest in the Anglican church. He's a missionary and he is not saved. Is that possible? This is not a rhetorical question. Is that possible? So it might have meant that he got saved. It certainly meant that he had an experience unlike the intellectual experiences that he had had in seminary. He didn't just meet the facts and figures about Jesus. He met Jesus as they were having a Bible study on the book of Romans. Imagine that. Strangely warmed. What does it mean to have a burning heart? 
It's the truth of Scripture, the facts and the figures of Scripture working its way into our heart. What do they say, the old-timers? There's this 12-inch difference between knowing the Bible and being saved, the difference between your head and your heart. So the truth of Scripture working its way into our heart, filling us with hope in our darkest moments, filling us with a passion that allows us to escape evil and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, no matter what it might cost us. Uh, Having a burning heart is having faith, the gift of God that none of us can muster on our own. Having faith come to life in our heart, in our mind, in our life, so that we can love God and obey God and serve God. It's having the assurance that beyond the shadow of a doubt, no matter what the surface might seem to indicate, I am right with God. Has your heart been strangely warmed? Is it still burning? Knowing scripture only gets us part of the way there. We must have a heartwarming experience of God, of being saved, of having the Holy Spirit take up residence in our lives. But what was it in this Emmaus story? What was it that triggered this realization that their hearts had been burning? They hadn't noticed it as they were walking along and Jesus was giving them this long sermon, right? What was it that triggered this awareness that their hearts had been burning all afternoon? Their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. Oh, talk about layers of truth. Note the similarity in the language that's used here. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He took, he gave, he broke, and he gave it to them. There's a similarity in those words and the words of the feeding of the 5,000 and of the Lord's Supper, two previous events in the story, the Gospel of Jesus. At the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus took this meager lunch of a little boy and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it and it ended up being enough for 5,000 people. The truth here is that when Jesus breaks and prays and gives, whatever might be meager in our life becomes plenty. God is able to supply our needs. In the Last Supper, the ordinary things that were a part of that meal Remind us of the extraordinary things. That's what sacrament means. Something ordinary, something tangible, something that you can see and touch and feel is a symbol for something that's intangible, something that's extraordinary. So the broken bread at the Last Supper becomes a symbol of the broken body. And the poured wine becomes a symbol of spilled blood. These sacramental symbols turn what could be just a mere academic exercise into burning hearts, a passion and a love for God and his ways and his mission. I want to be a 
a part of that Last Supper. (laughs) I want to be commissioned the way Jesus commissioned them. I want to be set free the way Jesus set them free from sin. I want to be broken the way Jesus was willing to be broken. All of that in bread and a cup. At the Emmaus table, their hearts were strangely warmed. And they came to recognize that Jesus, this crucified Jesus that somehow was mysteriously resurrected, has become the bread of life. Not just to fill your stomach, but to usher you into the experience of eternal life. Life with Christ. That Jesus is not just the written word, Jesus is the living word. The word that lives so tangibly so close to us that he walks along the dusty road with us. He explains scripture to us. He causes our hearts to burn with a passion for him. The key to recognizing Jesus is in seeing him in the broken bread. The Messiah who had to suffer these things. The key to seeing the kingdom of God and being involved in the kingdom is found in recognizing Jesus in the broken bread, which has a way of recalibrating our expectations. Oh, that's what the Messiah is all about. Oh, that's what the mission is all about. Brokenness and the glory that comes with God's resurrection power. I didn't realize that at first. I could have had a V8. We are the body of Christ. We are the way in which Jesus now presents himself to the world. At the Last Supper, Jesus dropped a bomb. He dropped a bomb. He said to them that the Holy Spirit would not be able to come until he left. Sorry, folks, it's one or the other. Jesus had to leave, had to die on a cross and be resurrected and ascend to his Father's right hand. If he didn't do that, ten days later, the Holy Spirit would not come. Jesus in John's telling of the story, chapter 6, verse 13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he, he will tell you what is yet to come. When he, the Spirit of truth, Comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. In other words, the stories that we have here in these four Gospels are not all there is to know about God. Did you hear that? The gospel stories chronicling the 33-year life of Christ, especially the last three years of his life, is not everything that there is to know about God. Jesus, in his finite human form, 
had a limited time to communicate the essence of what God needed to communicate. And to whom was he communicating it? Come on. How would you describe the disciples during those three years? Boneheads. (laughs) Selfish, mistaken boneheads. And yet Jesus the rabbi just repeated it over and over again. He demonstrated in miracles over and over again. He spent day in and day out setting the example of the need to pray. For three years, he told them as much as he possibly could, the essence of what God needed them to know. And then he died, and then he was resurrected, and he had 40 days. 40 days to spend with his bonehead disciples who were still boneheads because the Holy Spirit had not yet come. Oh, certainly they understood some things as this conversation that we're focusing on today is, 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 is indicating. Certainly they had a different perspective because of the resurrection of Christ, but they're still not filled with the Holy Spirit and he only has 40 days And then they're on their own for 10 days, and next week we'll celebrate Pentecost when the Holy Spirit finally comes. Jesus had to go. He had to ascend if the Holy Spirit was going to come. And so when the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he's sent to guide us into all truth. The rest of what Jesus wasn't able to get to because we're thick. And he's going to tell us what is yet to come. Because obviously we don't know what is yet to come, do we? Oh, we've got a glimpse of it. We think we just read Revelation and we know what's to come. (laughs) We don't know what is to come. But Jesus has provided us with his Holy Spirit to tell us what is yet to come as far as God's will and purposes for our lives, as well as God's purposes and his will for our church, as well as God's will and purposes for our community, as well as God's will and purposes for our world. The Holy Spirit is still revealing that to us. This is the point of this entire long, laborious sermon series. If we're not praying then how in the world can we expect to know what is to come? If we are not having conversations with God on a daily, regular basis, if we are not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, then how in the world can we possibly expect to know what God wants us to do next? We have to pray. One of the things that we 21st century Christians struggle with is we, we think that because we live when we live and we have all of this vast uh, amount of history and wisdom and insight, that we are not just like those disciples on the Emmaus Road. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. <laughs> 
Oh, we pat ourselves on the back because we know so much more. We are so much more attentive to God. And, and yes, to some small degree, that is true. But brothers and sisters, we are just as prone to falling prey to false expectations as they were. We are just as prone to think that we know everything there is to know about the Bible. We are just as prone to think we know everything there is to know about how to pray, how to have a conversation with God. We must continue to pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to tell us what is yet to come. Our first and last prayer and perhaps all day long prayer ought to be, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes so that we might have burning hearts. Lynn is coming to lead us as we sing, Open the Eyes of My Heart. And I pray that this would not just be a song, but it would be a prayer. Lord, in my specific life, in the midst of my particular circumstances, with all of the hopes and expectations that I have, all of the things that I think I know, all of the things that I hope are going to happen, Lord, open my eyes, because I don't want to see my version of anything. I want to see what the Spirit is leading us into. So let's sing this song together.
flesh. Eyes of flesh which earlier in our life probably worked pretty well. For some of us these days, not so well. Thank you for the amazing things that we have been able to see through our eyes of flesh. But Lord, you have introduced us to eyes of faith. You have made it possible for us to see what cannot be seen with eyes of flesh. You have made it possible for us to know and understand and experience the ways of God. You have opened our eyes to the kingdom of heaven, which is at work in our world and our lives, but can't be seen any other way than eyes of faith. Lord, we thank you for the facts of the stories of Scripture. We thank you for the words that are written on the page. We thank you for those who have made it their life's work to study those languages, those metaphors, those parables, that poetry, that prophecy, those many, many ways of expressing truth. Father, we thank you for what they have taught us. But more than anything else, we are grateful this morning for the Holy Spirit who is leading us, continuing to lead us into all the truth, who is continuing to reveal to us what is yet to come. Father, I pray that you would humble us just as you humbled those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Lord, we give you permission to tell us where we're being fools, where we're living out of false expectations. Lord, we give you permission not only to tell us the truth, but to help us to experience that truth with burning hearts and a passion for you. Lord, we love you. We're amazed that we're able to say that and really mean it. We love you. I love you, Lord. And we thank you for loving us each individually, no matter where we are. Thank you for loving us and transforming us with your redeeming power and grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.